my job as a therapist is to teach people to not need me. And I consider myself successful as a therapist when I can say, Grasshopper, you have taken the pebble. Now get the fuck out of my office. (laughs) Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. Today, we are going deep and wide with my man, Paul Check. Now, Paul has been a mentor, a coach, a friend of mine all the way since 2013. You know, I'd started studying his work when I was 18. So quite a few years ago, almost 18 years ago. And his not only knowledge, experience, but wisdom as it relates to the human body and life as a whole has consistently and always just astounded me. And every single time I'm around Paul, I soak up as much as I can. And what I really noticed is so much of what I've learned from him, yes, have come from his books and just his teachings at the Czech Institute and his coaching. But a lot of it has come just from observing the way that he lives. And in this podcast, I'm actually at his home in Southern California. And Paul is in the process of writing his new book, which is a deep dive into spirituality and life as a whole. And so on this particular day, he's coming off of multiple hours in the morning from writing that book. So you can imagine where his head is, his heart is. He is full immersed in this book, which is going to be such a cool gift to this world. And I really see Paul as a wise elder. You know, he's been such an innovator in the health and fitness industry in so many ways that many people don't realize. And and we kind of go into that a little bit on this podcast, but this podcast is going to cover so many topics from physical injury and the mental, emotional, symbolic correlations to that, to animal symbolism, to his work as a shaman, to just the curiosities and the depth that is life and how that can impact our performance, our healing, our friendships, our relationships. So there is so much that I could say about this podcast, but let me just say, get ready to be blown away. This is The Path Podcast with my man, Paul Check. I hope you love this one. Let's go. You've been such a pioneer. I mean, your entire life. You know, you've been a, and, and, and as a result, how I've, everything that I've known about you, you've also been a target. There are, <laughs> there are consequences to mm-hmm. the path that you've taken. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to a midlife crisis, that and, and all the other stuff I mentioned, but the constant attacks uh, got to be just exhausting. And already, like, I'm like, I can just feel like, um, I don't know, anger coming up because how I know you and experience you is so so loving and so caring. <laughs> and I know your, your, your intentions and ever since we worked together. And so it upset, it upsets me when, when, you know, let's say people speak out against you or whatever, and they don't even know you, um, mm, but they accuse me of running a cult <laughs> or some bull, you know, and, and, but like, you've done so many things that still people to this day, you find your work have no idea that you're responsible for. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole laundry list, but what I'm really curious about is more maybe like of the human side, like how have you found the strength or the courage to keep moving forward, knowing your intention and knowing how much you care. 
how have you found the strength to keep going amidst the challenges and the controversy and the bullshit? Well, it's a good question, and I'll tell you how I did it and how I do it. You know, for me, teaching is a very high spiritual responsibility. I, I learned through my own spiritual practice and guidance from my soul that karma is generated in three levels. I, whatever you do to yourself that traumatizes yourself, and you know you're doing it. So if you know, for example, eating junk food is making you sick, but you keep doing it, the disease you get is your karma. Karma means action, reaction. You know, you throw a tennis ball at the wall, it might come back and hit you at the face. Okay. Um, if you throw it at a wall consciously and say, I'm going to make it go over there, it won't hit you in the face. Mm. Um, so whenever somebody is abusing themselves in any way, physically, emotionally, mentally, or otherwise, they're generating karma. They have to take responsibility for what they're creating. Because ultimately, in each one of us, God is in a cocoon state, like a larva state. And ultimately, it goes from larva to, I think it's cupa in the cocoon, and then it metamorphoses as a butterfly, right? So our first level of spiritual responsibility is to be honest with ourselves. The second level of responsibility is that we are 50% responsible for every relationship we have. And we have to take responsibility for 100% of our 50%. And so what that means is if you are abusive to somebody in a relationship and you know that you shouldn't be talking that way or you shouldn't be acting that way, but you're doing it anyhow, then you have to take responsibility for the karma, which could be a divorce, for example, or the loss of a job or the loss of a friend or the loss of a a good business opportunity or whatever it might be. But the highest spiritual responsibility comes whenever there's three or more people because now your belief or your behavior is being spread amongst multiples. So imagine how many students I've had in my classrooms or how many people have watched my videos or how many people what I'm putting out there has touched in some way, whether they like it or not. You know, remember, I, I studied self-realization fellowship from when I was 12 years old. I went to summer camp with the monks, so I, I was very deeply taught the Hindu conception of God and the Hindu conception of karma and, and the responsibility of becoming self-conscious and aware of the impact you have on all living things and, and in your 50% in all relationships. So as a teacher, I've always known that if I don't do the work to test whatever it is that I'm teaching with enough commitment to make sure that I am not misleading people, then I run the risk of misleading people. Okay. So think of how many people right now out of fear and insecurity totally changed their values and went from being holistic spiritually proposed people without mentioning names, but a lot of very famous people. And all of a sudden were telling everyone they needed to get vaccinated and switch their whole role out of social pressure and fear only now to realize as many of them have to come back and say, I was wrong that 
millions of people have been very badly injured and killed. Okay. So that's avoiding their responsibility as a teacher. And anyone that does that has to take the karmic responsibility of that. The point that I'm driving at here is that I, as a teacher, have one, I've always had to sleep with myself. So if I'm misleading people or lying to people or telling people things that I just made up or trying to look cool or reading shit out of a book and, and, and then telling everybody that it's fact without doing the due diligence to look into it or evaluate how does that really play out based on my life experience. You know, like, for example, I can go hand you a, a book by Gabriel Cousins on spiritual nutrition and he's an MD. And he really believes that. But with my knowledge, I could go through and show you 50 things in that book that I would never recommend. For example, I would not encourage people to drink distilled water. I know too much about it. Without a lesson on distilled water, I'll tell you that there's very limited applications for distilled water. Why? Because it's completely and utterly naked. It'll suck the minerals right out of your body. And I've had countless patients in my career that had spontaneous cracking of the teeth after drinking distilled water for about a year because it sucks so much of the minerals out of their body, their teeth began to fracture. So, but you see the point that I'm making is if somebody like that is promoting stuff and telling it to them as fact before they have the evidence or before they can clarify how often should you drink distilled water? When do you drink distilled water? They have to carry the karma for all that. The only exception to the rule as Steiner teaches is the universe will absorb the karma for anything you do without truly understanding it. If you, what do you, whatever you do out of innocence or unconsciousness, the universe absorbs the karma. But if you get somebody like Fauci telling everyone that they need to take this or that, and ultimately it's a game that they're playing for ulterior motives, and they know they're playing the game, the, I would just tell you I would not want to be that man because when he dies, he will have to meet the truth of himself face to face because there's nothing for God to meet but God. And the first thing you meet is your own God power. Wow. The point I want to conclude with is that I have always been aware of two things. One, I don't teach things until I have ample evidence that if it's used the way I'm teaching it to be used, it will produce results because I've done it hundreds, if not thousands of times clinically. So people can get on, well, I get on stage and they can argue with me all I want. You know, when I started teaching people how to use Swiss balls, they told me I was a fag and that I was stupid and, and it was dangerous and, and just an endless stream of injuries. But then five years later, everybody's got a Swiss ball on their gym and the same people that told me that shit. Um, you know, when I told people machines will ruin you, and I used a lot of scientific literature to back it. People got very, very upset at me and said, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, a long list of nasty shit. Uh, but, you know, I said, well, look, here's the freaking science. And I've had many cases while I'm giving these lectures and some smart ass with a master's degree or PhD raises an arm and tries to give me a laundry list of why I'm wrong. And I say, okay, good. Well, here's a study by so-and-so. Here's what happens. Here's uh, you know, example, a uh, functional box lifting test. They use MedEx machines. They put people on MedEx machines. They increase their strength in their back extensors by 300%, but they had a 0% improvement doing a functional box lift test, i.e. 
I got a box over here with a bunch of weight plates in it. We're going to test you at the beginning. You could lift the box with 30 pounds before you had pain. You've gained 300% on the back extension machine, but you still can't lift the box with 30 pounds in it without having pain. You can't lift 35. So the whole idea that you gain 300% strength actually means nothing to your ability to pick up something out of the trunk of your car or your suitcase when you go on vacation. So I, you know, this is just the surface of it. I mean, I study this stuff, you know, <laughs> you're sitting in my library and I've traveled the world to study with the very best doctors and therapists and exercise physiologists and kinesiologists, you name it. And so I, I had, you know, mountains of evidence from neurological studies to kinesiological studies to motor learning and motor development. And I'm looking at this going, you know, this is a very, very flawed philosophy. And it's driven by the one intention of selling a shitload of machines. And then I exposed, I've got the first journal, uh, the Life magazine, 1961, where Vic Tanney was promoted as America's number one trainer, in which they unveiled the concept of using machines to create gyms. And I can even show you industry articles written by business insiders showing that gyms were specifically designed so that people would not stay there, so that it would create traffic jams, so that people would not use their memberships, so you could get them in for New Year's resolutions and encourage them to come be fit, but that the actual gyms were designed to repel people so that the cost of managing the gym and the cost of staffing the gym was much lower. That's karma. Okay? So what I'm sharing with you to go right back to the point is how did I survive all the attacks? Because I sat there and listened to the attacks from people that did not know what they were talking about, that were insecure, that did not have the clinical experience, that did not study the opposing viewpoints, that were addicted to their opinion, who are making money off their opinion. And there's a very powerful saying, it's almost impossible to change a man's belief system when his paycheck depends on it. I knew what I knew. And I knew from a lot of experience, and I was an elite level competitive athlete most of my life. And most guys like you that are spending time around with me, even as a 61-year-old man, <laughs> I can still take young guys younger than you out there and pick rocks up and stack them at chest height. And they can't even get them off the ground. And they got 40 pounds more muscle than me. And they look at me and they say, fucking hell, what drugs are you on? And I say, that's the wrong question. That's a cop-out. That question alone is a cop-out. The way I navigated the storm was, first, it was very irritating. But as I grew spiritually and I, I, I studied psychology, I began to realize that the attacks were largely from insecure people or people that had a financial investment or people who had invested a lot of money to go to school, for example, and get a degree in exercise physiology. And now if I was right, it means that they spent $60,000 to learn something that was utterly useless. So they, instead of defending the fact that they were now having an opportunity to learn and grow, they defended the idea that if Paul's right, then I wasted all this money. So we have to make Paul wrong because it makes me feel better. In a nutshell, what I'm saying is I always had the inner security of knowing that I was telling people the highest truth that I could. And if my highest truth changed tomorrow, I would let everybody know 
that I've had to change the way I do things because I learned something. And I would always do my best to let everybody know, oh, by the way, what I told you, there's a better way to do it. Well, I'm curious with that on that topic of, let's say, conscious deceit, what might be an example or a few examples of how that might manifest in the body as an ailment or like where might that be concentrated? Well, the more you lie to manipulate or coerce other people, the more you begin to think everybody else does that too. Because your perception of other is based on your perception of yourself. It's only because you have love in you for you and for life that you can see the love in me when it's in front of you. But if you were a criminal or a thief, you would definitely lock your house because you're sure that a lot of people are out there wanting to steal from you because you project yourself out onto the world. You know, this is something very important to always remember. And if you're hearing this now, engrave it into your eyeballs and into your brain. You never see the world as it is, but as you are. If you're afraid of bees because someone told you to be afraid of bees, but you've never developed a relationship with them, you'll swing at them and they'll sting you and you'll have a reason to reinforce your belief system. Why? Because you produced the experience by participating in your belief system, but you did not give the bee a chance to show you who it really is. Because you see the world as you are, not as it is. When you see the world as it is, you see something truly miraculous. You see God willing to be everything to experience the truth of itself for better or worse. And because God has no fear of death, because God cannot die, God knows the truth of a soul. And the truth of a soul is that God is the consciousness in every sentient being from the bacteria and the virus all the way to angels. So when you see the world as it is, you see God going from the state of sleeping larva to cupa to the transformation to becoming a butterfly. And an enlightened person is someone who actually looks out at the world and sees the rest of itself and says, ah, I've got to love the bees. You know, like I don't like people killing rattlesnakes. That's mostly fear and projection. So I tell people, love everything you can and, and kill minimally. And, and that's why I tell meat eaters, it's a good idea to go to a slaughter and attend a slaughter, get close enough, the blood splatters on you, look in the animal's eyes when it's getting a bolt through the head or a gun shot or a throat cut and feel the fear and feel the loss. And when you eat that animal, eat it with the reverence that you're inviting the soul of that animal into your body to live through you and to become human and join you in helping make the world a better place for all living beings, including the other deer or the other cows or the other pigs or the other chickens. And then the animal didn't die. It became human. But if you kill and eat unconsciously, the soul of that animal is trapped in an unconscious body and it continues to kill and eat. And that becomes a source of trauma to the entire kingdom of life. This is where I've tried to educate the vegetarians because their whole idea that you shouldn't kill is inept. Because, for example, 98% of them are eating commercially raised food that was raised on 
fields that were sprayed with herbicides, pesticides, rodenticides that are killing birds and killing animals and poisoning them and giving them cancer. So I say, you're playing a very dangerous game. You think you're saving an animal, but at the same time, you're poisoning yourself, which means you're killing the one animal that can vote and make the world a better place. So when I eat a chicken or I eat a piece of fish, I invite that into my body and say, I will work with you to help make the world a better place for all living beings. And you are not dying. You are now living in me. Welcome to humanity. And so I carry the soul of everything I've ever eaten inside of me. And I cherish every one of them because they actually give me life. Without them, I cannot exist in this form. Instead of a dogmatic ism that's based on a bunch of confused ideas by people that don't have enough spiritual depth to look into the truth of themselves and the truth of life and the truth of nature and the truth of consciousness and what a soul really is, then you get an ism and then they begin to be resentful of and attack the meat eaters, but the meat eaters also overconsume and think that there's an infinite supply of animals and you get white man killing the buffalo and destroying and slaughtering. And so then you break the heart of the Native American Indian that worships those creatures. So you see, life is full of these extremes. You've got violence and ignorance on one side, and you've got isms and confusions and belief systems on the other side. And all isms and belief systems are actually cop-outs because once you think you know something, you stop questioning it. Mm. So anytime you have religion or you have vegetarianism or socialism or any ism, you have a belief system whereby you forego the responsibility of thinking about what that ism is creating and, you, and they always have a father figure controlling it. So it means that that person's choosing to stay at the psychological level of development of a child and the head of the ism, Nazism, makes the decisions for you. And one day you wake up after the Second World War and go, oh my God, I participated in the slaughter of millions of human beings that we labeled as Jews to turn them into objects so we could destroy them to try to get more of something that we didn't want to share with anybody else. So on one side, you have unconscious killing. And on the other side, you have unconscious killing in the name of something that they think is good, which is usually very short-sighted and is directed by somebody else that plays the role of a mommy or a daddy figure. In the middle, you have the realization that on either side is immature souls that haven't woken up to the truth of themselves and as long as they're doing it unconsciously, the universe absorbs the karma. In other words, if you're a vegetarian and you think you're doing the right thing, but you don't realize you're not, then the karma is absorbed by the universe. And one day you'll wake up and you'll mature. But if someone like me comes along to teach you and you ignore it, then you've ignored a message from God. And now you have to carry the karma for it. I imagine that a lot of people don't know that you've actually personally experimented for an extended period of time with being a vegetarian. Twice. And twice for like a year or something? Uh, I did when I was a child. My mother wanted me to be a vegetarian when she joined the Self-Realization Fellowship. Um, and after six months, I became anemic and, and started getting very weak and, and couldn't think in school, couldn't work on the farm. So she took me to a naturopathic physician. He tested my blood and he said, this kid needs a steak. That's mm. all he needs. Feed him some meat. He'll be fine. I went home, ate some meat. And within three hours, I felt good again. Wow second time my soul directed me to being a vegetarian, which I didn't want to do, but my soul wanted to take me into a year of deep training 
and I had to get the spirit of the animals out of my body because this is a bit complex, but Steiner shows you that the more membranes there is in any animal's body, the more consciousness it has. Hmm. Everything in the universe is energy and information that's vibrating. So when the vibration of the universe hits your body, if you have a plant, take a plant leaf, there's, there's really only a couple of membranes in there. One on the out, one, one side, one on the other, and some veins and some stuff in the middle. A single cell only has one membrane with two sides. So if you send a signal to one side, it goes through this cytoplasm and it goes out the other side. So those membranes can vibrate, but the energy will bounce back and forth and it can only pick up so much. But now if you couple a whole pile of cells together, like a thousand of them, that same signal reverberates 2000 times because it's hitting both sides of a membrane. So now you've got an orchestra. So you see the more membranes there is, the more it catches energy and information, which creates consciousness. One definition of consciousness is the total flow of energy and information in any living system. So Steiner showed that the more membranes any creature has, the more self-conscious it is. And therefore, the idea becomes more concretized. So the idea of a sheep is a lot has got a lot more self-consciousness than the idea of a turnip or the idea of a carrot. The point being is, whenever you eat a food, be it a carrot or a piece of lamb, you have to annihilate the idea. That's why you have hydrochloric acid in your stomach, because hydrochloric acid takes the membranes, the meat, the protein, that was sheep that carries the consciousness and the soul of the sheep and it breaks it down to individual amino acids which is exactly what you're built out of but you cannot identify if i put a bunch of lysine taurine and amino acids on the table and say where did that come you can't tell me but if i give you a chunk of meat and you take it to a laboratory and analyze it you could say this is a piece of meat from a sheep because you can recognize the structure or the idea right your immune system has got to obliterate the idea of anything that you eat. And if it can't, such as someone with leaky gut syndrome, then sheep leaks through the small intestine, gets into the liver, and the immune system says, there's a sheep inside of our body. We've got to get rid of it. And the analogy Steiner gives, the reason you can put someone in jail and feed them nothing but lamb for a year and they don't turn into a sheep, because every cell in your body will turn over within one year span, that's what science shows us now, is because the immune system obliterates the idea of the sheep and uses the building blocks that create sheepness to create humanness. And then your soul infuses those amino acids and the structures that your body builds with its own soul. So when someone's got leaky gut syndrome, one of the things that happens to them, you might have noticed from your own experience, their consciousness becomes very cloudy. Their head gets very foggy. And oftentimes they start having um, emotional instability. Why? Because there's too many souls inside their body. And so they start getting confused at the unconscious level of what is them and what is not them. So the digestive system is designed specifically to obliterate the idea because the, once there's enough molecules in a construction that represents the archetypal idea of that plant or animal, it 
is an antenna for the soul of that animal. Everything is an antenna. Mm. If you study the work of Shelley R. Joy, an electrical engineer who's also got a degree in theology and world religion, Shelley R. Joy shows that the human body and our blood system, the water in your body and your blood platelets, the average capillary in the human body is nine to 10 microns. The average white red blood cell is nine microns. And when she used her knowledge as an electrical engineer and said, what frequencies would that make an antenna for? Infrared. Wow. And then she showed that on the earth, there's what's called a passband. Energy leaving the earth gets absorbed by the atmosphere. Okay. But a passband is a band of frequency at which the energy moves right through our atmosphere out into space. And because infrared is light, it travels at the speed of light indefinitely through the universe. Why? Because every part of the universe is connected to every other part and learning from itself. So Shelley Joy showed that the human being is sending and receiving information with the whole universe and that every water molecule in a human body acts as a single resonant antenna system that puts you in touch with every living thing in nature and connects you to the entire cosmos in about the 33 megahertz frequency and did it and showed that people that keep looking at the human body using Newtonian physics have overlooked something very important because they keep looking at the heat and thinking it's just heat. But she took the heat and using frequency science, mathematically calculated that the heat in the infrared radiation turns out to be in the megahertz, 33, I think 33 megahertz frequency. Now you're ready for the bigger punchline? (laughs) The world internet is conducted in fiber optic cables that turn out to have the same internal diameter as the average human capillary. And we are sending and receiving information on the same bandwidth of the entire internet. And what is the commonly accepted name for the internet? The web. The global. Network. Brain. Oh, shit. Okay. The global brain. Huh. So Shelley Joy showed that every water molecule in your body is in a resonant harmony with the entire of nature and the cosmos. It's sending and receiving infrared information at a frequency that penetrates the entire atmosphere and goes forever and is receiving and sending on that frequency. And that your body is acting like a liquid crystal. And what did they use to use crystals for? Tuning for radios. And she shows that that bandwidth of infrared is perfect for the production and the sending and receiving of images, thoughts, feelings, emotions, radio signals, and that the human being is really like a sending and receiving station that's broadcasting its own personal learning experiences to the rest of the universe. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's an example. If I said that on stage, there would be some smart ass who would raise his hand and tell me that I'm wrong Mm. and give me five reasons why I'm wrong without ever seeing the research and looking into it 
and doing the science, looking at the science. You see, I have a background in advanced electronics. I spent a year in electronics school and was trained to repair weapon systems in Cobra helicopters, which at that time were the most advanced military aircraft that was a helicopter, which had very, you know, they're 11 million bucks a copy. There's a lot going on in there. There's top secret shit in there. And so, you know, I learned how antenna works. I learned how circuits work. I know what capacitors and resistors and semiconductors do. So I can take the same technology and I got books in my library showing you that's every one of those things that are in electronic circuit is in every cell in your body. And that everything that we're, and this is why Steiner said something quite profound. Steiner said, man will continue to invent technologies outside of himself until he realizes that everything he's inventing is an inferior copy of what exists within him or he destroys the world. The question is, which will come first? My job is to help everybody realize the truth of the technology that's inside of you, which is why I am not a proponent of biohacking. Because every time you add an electronic gadget that does something that you should be awakening within yourself, you become less conscious. Absolutely. So the whole check system is a system that paradoxically teaches you help how to help other people while you become more conscious so that each time you grow in your consciousness, you have more to offer them. The difference is I show you how to do it, but I leave it to you to do it. That way, when Mike identifies something in someone that he's learned through his own work with himself, he can authentically say, I know this to be true versus just being a Paul Check photocopy machine. Well, it's because Paul Check says, or it's because so-and-so says, well, when you just do what other people say to do without making it your own, you become highly susceptible to belief systems and isms. And that's a great way to generate a lot of karma, whether it be conscious or unconscious, but it means people are not learning and growing. They're being stifled by belief. Belief is one of the most dangerous things there is because the day you believe something, you stop questioning it. And if you stop questioning it, the program runs automatically. And so now you're a robot. And that's exactly what the World Economic Forum is trying to do to all of you. That's exactly why they say there's no such thing as a soul and all this God shit's got to go, that humans are completely hackable and controllable and profitable. Because, like religion, they do not want you to become conscious because the more conscious you become, the less afraid of death you are and the less controllable you are and therefore the less profitable you are. Mm. So ultimately what I teach, and this brings us to another punchline, I teach people how to take complete responsibility for themselves, how to think for themselves, and how to, how to become an independent, self-aware person that accepts responsibility for their choices for better or worse instead of blaming it on other people. And I am recused constantly of running a cult. Mm. Okay, What does a cult leader do? takes away your freedom, mm. brainwashes you to do exactly what they want you to do, when they want you to do, how they want you to do it, even if it's illegal and gets people killed or involves killing people. Mm. So you can see the level of ineptitude in those that call me a cult leader, because if they knew anything about a cult, they would see I'm doing completely and utterly the opposite with all my teachings. And that unlike the medical system, my goal when Mike Salemi came to me hurt, my goal was to teach him everything he needed to know to never need me again. Mm -hmm. My job as a therapist is to teach people to not need me. And I 
consider myself successful as a therapist when I can say, Grasshopper, you have taken the pebble. Now get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting to, you know, in, in my work with you, and, and we've done podcasts together, and people who've listened even to my solo cast episode two of The Path are a little bit or a lot aware of our work together and how influential you've been on me and really have been the largest foundational rock in how I coach today, personal training, performance development. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for that you introduced me to was, for example, my connection more with spirituality and looking mm. at some of these different elements and how, how can a painting tell us so much about where we are and potential challenges are ahead. Yes. Or how when things like a spider's in our field, how can we use that as inspiration for where we may not be able to see right now? So I'm very grateful for that. Well, there's something that comes to my mind to share with you in that regard. And this is a, a deep spiritual or metaphysical leap for a lot of people. But the ego or the sense of self or your conscious awareness, like everything you're aware of right now, is in your conscious awareness, which is really only 3 to 5% of your total consciousness. Once you go below the ego, you get to the personal unconscious, which is everything that you're aware of, but you're not aware of, as well as all the memories of everything that's ever happened to you in your lifetime. And it's anything that you don't want to look at for reasons of pain, fear, self-judgment, guilt, shame, etc. But when you go below that, you go to the collective unconscious, mm -hmm. and that's the memory of everything that's ever happened on the planet to every single living thing and the planet itself. So in the collective unconscious, you, you basically have the whole of the unconscious of everything on the planet. So it's, you know, it's as old as the planet. It's 4.9 billion years old. Um, but the planet is, of course, part of the solar system, which is part of a galaxy, which is part of a universe. So if you keep going back, what you'll find is that Ultimately, it's source that's conscious. So if source, the way I express this to people is, imagine you were a dance floor. Mm. Could anybody walk on you without you knowing it? No. Could anybody spill water on you without you knowing it? No, not if you're the whole floor. Is there anything anyone could do on there, no matter how quietly they tried to do it, without you knowing it? Okay, so God is like the line that an electrocardiogram or an electroencephalogram moves out of. So when someone dies, they, they flatlined, right? So the, the zero line in every graph you've ever looked at represents the equivalent of source consciousness, which is called big C in, in the consciousness literature. So if you, if you were to draw a graph and you had your typical sine wave on it, then anybody moving on the dance floor would be causing vibration. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're only conscious because that background is there. That's the, the real eye, right? So that, if we say this line represents God consciousness, and here's Mike talking to Paul and then over here, we have the spider up on the wall. Okay, so here comes the punchline. It's Mike's ego and Paul's ego 
that creates the illusion that there's something here other than God. But you can't have a soul because the soul is that zero line within you. So right here, right here, and right here, you're, all those waves are coming out of zero. So that's where your soul is at. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting. You realize that means everything in the created universe, which is nothing but energy and information vibrating, is the witness, the consciousness that's present to all. So if you, if I gave you a big enough dose of a shamanic medicine like uh, mushrooms or ayahuasca or LSD or any of them, this barrier starts to break down, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because the default mode network breaks down. So now what happens is the experience of Mike and Paul being separate becomes less and less of a separation. And all of a sudden I can be looking at you and feel as though somehow when you're breathing, I'm breathing. Or when you're looking at me, I'm looking at a piece of myself. Or I can look in the mirror and merge into the mirror and all of a sudden find myself my consciousness in my reflection, looking back at me. Okay. So the point that I'm driving at is that when a spider shows up or a deer or anything, actually it's God showing up to look at God. Wow. When you're doing coaching with people, uh, let's just say without medicines or with medicines, when you're supporting them, is that exactly what you're doing to feel into where yeah. they're at or get information from them? Yes. You see, when you, when you get deep enough into your spiritual development, you begin to have experiences which can come by way of medicines. But if the medicines give you experiences that challenges your belief system, mm -hmm. then what you have is people that get deeply spiritual f for about a week. And the next thing you know, they're right back to the same old shit again. Hmm. And that's why maintaining legitimate spiritual practices is so important. That's why I did Tai Chi every day for 18 years. And I've been meditating for, since I was a kid. And because you, you, you need to keep reorienting your perceptual faculty from a sense of division from self and other and self and world to a sense of the realization that that's the illusion and that the truth is the unity of it all. Because if God is God, then there can only be one source of anything that exists or you don't have God. God means that for which there is no other prime source. So you see, when I'm coaching somebody, I hold the awareness that I'm coaching myself, expressing itself through Mike Salemi. So in other words, I'm not really coaching another person. I'm coaching a part of me that is manifesting in my presence as a potential through which I can also express myself and thereby any differences help me see aspects of myself. For example, if you have an injury, like you came to me with an injury, sure. then I can say, ah, Mike's he's he's experiencing thoracic outlet syndrome for me and so because i understand what thoracic outlet syndrome is i can also experience i can be empathetic enough to feel his pain in me and that helps guide me 
So I, I, in other words, I allow the barrier to break down so that I operate basically from two modes of perception. One mode of perception is I, thou, me, and Mike. The other mode of perception is if I empty myself of barrier and allow myself to open fully to Mike, then I get the benefit of hearing his words, seeing his facial expressions and his gestures, but I also get the experience of feeling what Mike's presence is causing to happen inside of me. Just like if I was a sensitive meter and I'm emptying myself to be able to feel, which allows me to know, for example, if Mike is saying something to me, but it's causing him to be anxious, I feel anxiousness inside of me. And I go, ah, there's anxiousness arising up in me, but I know I'm not anxious. So I know that whatever Mike's talking about right now has a degree of emotion, fear, or insecurity, or any of the things that create anxiousness, right? So it allows me to do what's called sacred listening. And then in the act of sacred listening, I'm able to see what's happening in that person's unconscious. How is it affecting me? And by feeling that, it allows me to, which I usually do before I start coaching, but it allows me to then connect to the soul of Mike or the soul of the client and say, I'm feeling anxious right now. Is there something that you would like me to explore with you to help get to the core of this anxiousness? And so then I just listen and I might hear, um, you need to ask Mike about, um, how he's feeling about his financial safety and security, or how does he feel about becoming a father? Um, because even though he is presenting himself as confident or whatever, this anxiousness is coming from somewhere. So instead of guessing, I just ask. And But part of the development as a therapist is to get to the point where you're actually deep enough into connection with your own soul, practiced enough in connection with your own soul and have the skills of interpretation because most people would not hear or feel anything, right? But when I feel that, this is how I lead a, a medicine ceremony, right? This is why I can be deep in the ceremony and all of a sudden, no, I got to get up and go talk to Mike because I feel something, anxiousness, for example, inside of me. So immediately I sense, where's that coming from? So if there's five or six people in the ceremony, I just track the vibration back and it points right to whoever it is. You see, it's quite a shift to reach the point in your own development where you actually can see Bill Gates as an expression of yourself or Donald Trump or Adolf Hitler or Charlie Manson or a pedophile or because you have to go, you have to go into places that will challenge you also have to mature to the point of realizing that if there is nothing in existence but God, then all of these things have got to be part of the divine exploring itself. And therefore, you are constantly being given a chance to decide how to manage that aspect of yourself or of God. And, and it, it's, it, it takes a you know, Bill Gates has been a real deep spiritual practice for me. So mm. has Anthony Fauci. So has George Soros. So has 
uh, Biden and, and the whole government and the whole medical system. So I have to look into my own mythology to see what does my myth say at a conscious or unconscious level about how to deal with threats of that magnitude. And then how do I handle that spiritually so that if I was to put myself in the position of Bill Gates and look through his eyes, what would I really find there? Would I find a man who truly believes that what he's doing is what's needed for the world? Probably. Would I find a man who's justified what he's doing because it makes him a lot of money? Probably. So it, it takes, uh, you know, what I call spiritual courage to, to really enter the other side of, of an equation like that and stick to the truth that, that I've learned through a lifetime of spiritual practices and medicine work and, and say, okay, th this is, you know, it's like when you're in a deep shamanic journey and a lot of scary, dark stuff comes up, you can either run from it and blame it on the drug, or you can engage it and say, ah, it's so, I'm so grateful the medicine showed me that that's inside of me because whatever's unconscious is still active in your psyche. It's just controlling you from the unconscious. Mm. And since the unconscious is, is, you know, Bruce Lipton says the unconscious has a processing power of a million times greater than the ego. So no matter how smart someone thinks there is, their unconscious is a million times smarter and more powerful. And since your unconscious is part of the collective, it means that you are expressing the collective. And since the collective is part of the universe, it means you're expressing the universe. And when you look at what creates the universe, it's the force of yang, centrifugal, outward going, hot, expansive energy coupled with yin, centripetal, inward flowing, anabolic, cooling, centering energy. So ultimately, the psyche consciousness depends on those two polarities. This is why Edward Edinger says psych consciousness is a psychic substance, means it's real, produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. Because you can't know north without south, good without bad, he without she, um, good without evil, um, love without not love. Because the only way you can make meaning in consciousness is if you have a contrast, right? You know, the only reason you can say something tastes good is because you know what bad taste is. <laughs> so that's a kind of a complex way to say that when the spider shows up, I mean, I've been living here for two years, over two years, and I've never had a tarantula show up in my library before. Now, if I came in here and there's tarantulas in here every day, then I'd say, well, that's just the nature of the environment. But when a tarantula shows up in my library, right when we're about to do a podcast, and I haven't seen one in two years, it means that there's spider energy. And every living creature in nature has an intelligence that's unique to it. This is why the Native Americans worship nature, because... They wanted to study spiders to learn how to have spider nests. They studied beavers to learn what a beaver could teach them about life. They studied the deer. They studied bears. They studied everything because they saw them as living beings that had skills that could be learned and acquired and, and utilized. And so if you want to build something out of wood, a beaver is a good teacher. They're like Navy SEALs. They build underwater, you know? So from a shamanic perspective, I can say, what, what is 
what does spider bring to my field? It, it, it says, well, you're, you're, you're about to weave something. Pay attention. And if you do a good job of it, you won't have to work too hard to catch whatever it is that the net is meant to catch, which is the awareness of other people to help them realize that the spider is on the wall for them. Because if they're listening, they're, they're here too. No matter when they listen to it, that spider will always be on the wall. You see the point. I of it. see it so clearly, and yeah. it's just it's it's wild, but it's not wild that it's showing up right now because that's been a big message for me. And even when we going back to that art mandala workshop that we did together, one of the things that you pointed out in my artwork, which had a, a yin and yang, mm-hmm. was that the two dots, the black and white dots, were starting to spread towards the edges, and we're not in the center. And for me, it's just been uh, I'm very comfortable working hard. I enjoy working hard. I love what I do. And also a big lesson for me is receiving help and, and learning which levers to pull on that are going to be the greatest yield with the least amount of work. Spider. Wow. Right. Weave your web, chill out, and wait for a dinner to fly into it. Wow. Spiders don't go hunting. They don't say, okay, you know, pack up some food, get your weapons and <laughs> Let's go and hope we can survive the journey. They let the hunt come to them. They fill up and they live off it until the next bug comes. And if they're full, they just wrap it up in a web so it can't go anywhere. And then they unwrap it and eat it. Just like you wrap up food and put it in the refrigerator. I'll give you an example of of a power animal since we're kind of talking about that. Yeah. You know, when I was 50, as you know, I went through quite a midlife crisis because I just worked myself to death trying to help people. And um, that was right. Not long after we started working together. Yes. Yeah, very intensely. So I remember that time yeah. very clearly. Yep. Yeah. You're one of the few people I took as clients because I was trying to avoid clients. But I, you know, I connected to your soul and your soul told me, yes, I'm supposed to be working with you at this time. So I said, okay, here we go. <laughs> but I was really, like I reached a point where I just wanted to join a Zen monastery. Uh, I was, you know, exploring, selling the Institute. And I just needed to be alone. Penny was willing to support me in whatever I wanted to do, even though she knew it could be the end of the Institute. She, she was more <laughs> interested in me just resting more. And, you know, and I, I said, I can't travel anymore. I'm exhausted. I can't get on another airplane. I'm, if I could take one step further, I'm going to get sick and it's going to ruin everything that the Institute stands for. Mm. So I stopped traveling. And, and back then there was, you know, no, there wasn't so much internet and, and podcasts were still kind of not very common. And, uh, you know, that was 11 years ago. So a lot's happened in 11 years. And so sure enough, the sales at the Institute went through the floor because, you know, I was often doing a hundred presentations a year and, and that's a lot of work to drive the, you know, keep this, keep the Institute alive, but I just couldn't do it anymore. So the point is I got to this point where I just felt overwhelmed because even when I said I couldn't do anymore, I still had a lot of things I had to do, filming and this and that, and to keep the institute from just falling right through the floor. So I went and sat in my sauna as I did every night and still do and, and went into meditation. And I I was just drawn to my bee power animal, which is my root chakra power animal. I, I don't know why I just sensed because my safety and security was being threatened. That's the power animal for that for that level of my psyche. And so I Connected to the bee power animal, I called it up into my awareness and said, I need your help. And I said, you know, you're, you, you know how I'm feeling. You're part of me. You're with me. Um, 
do you have any advice to help me get through this midlife crisis? Because I really just have lost my interest in everything. And then the B became very vivid in my consciousness, like it was standing there, like big, like it grew and it was big, like as big as you are. And it looked me right in the eyes. And the message that I got was very simple, but very profound. All of a sudden, the bee gave me images of all the bees inside the hive working together. You know, inside the hive is just buzzing with activity. And I saw the queen laying in the middle and them just hovering all around her and all the little honeycombs. And then the bee shifted back to me and it said one thing. No bee can make honey alone. And I just said, are you telling me I need to delegate more? And the answer was yes. You're trying to do too much by yourself. You need to learn how to work with your team better. And that's kind of been one of my challenges all my life is that I've, I've always moved faster than people around me can keep up. I can develop courses very quickly. I can write things very quickly. And so it's stressful for people. And so what happened is I started getting frustrated with people. So I started, and, and, and this was the same with Penny. We, we, we both sort of started just doing more and more and more and more by ourselves because we got to the point where we felt like we can't rely on people to get things done. And, and if you do that enough, you just burn out. Mm-hmm. So what I realized is I had to spend more time working on developing the abilities of the staff and the instructors and teaching people to row the boat better. Because as an analogy, if you have you know, a, a skull, a rowboat, and they're out of time, a, a team of rowers that is not nearly as fit can beat them because their energies are being dissipated in, in, oppos- in opposing directions, right? So there's like chaos in the water instead of harmony. And so I realized that I had to shift my orientation from trying to do so much myself to helping other people get better at what they did and working together better so that I was only doing the things that I should be doing, not doing things that I'm paying other people to do that don't get done. (laughs) But the key point is that the B was so efficient and so clear. Look at what's going on. There's a lot of bees. They're working together. No bee can make honey alone. Right. That's that was the answer. How do you how do I get through this crisis? And 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 that's. You know, from a shamanic perspective, I had to look at the bee of myself to see what the wisdom of the bee knows that had been walled off by my habits, my behavior, my pain, my trauma and how I had adapted to coping with the world. But the bee was telling me that that's not how the world really works. That's how you're adapting to your own trauma. But you've overlooked the fact that how the world really works is a state of very highly integrated cooperation, not only within species, but between species. And that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why native cultures worship nature, because they saw it as an almost infinite bank of wisdom. You know, we saw a couple of lizards out there when we were lifting rocks. Yep. Well, ask yourself, how old is the reptile family? It's a hell of a lot older than the human family. Mm -hmm. So when a reptile shows up for you like that, 
you have to say, okay, why is this reptile showing up in my presence? Is if there's a message, what is it? You know, and it. But you you always want to look at the message with regard to what the circumstances of your life are. Mm. Otherwise, it just becomes sort of a general message. Bees make honey and they pollinate. Great. So, the better question is, where do I need to make honey? And what do I need to pollinate in my life right now? And then you can see why the bees in your life. That's fascinating. And tying in something that you brought up earlier that I'd love to hear your take on and something like emptying the bones or the hollow bones, basically cleansing and clearing yourself so you can be more in tuned, especially as healers or people who enjoy helping other people. How can we put ourselves into a state or into a frequency so we can pick up? what you were saying about the other person. And also Mm. I want to tie it into this about, are there any suggestions or if you can share more on your experience on how can we get to that place where there is, we are more aware of things that are speaking to us all around us? Well, I'll start with the second one first. How do we get to be more aware? Arnold Mendel is a famous uh, psychologist who's got a, comprehensive background in mathematics and quantum physics and he's a shaman and a Jungian analyst. He was the uh, personal psychologist for Barack Obama, I believe it was, and he's written several excellent books. What he teaches and what I I agree with him, and there's not much I don't agree with him because he's like a really smart guy, and 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 you can tell you know you know when you're reading somebody that's for real. There's an authenticity, a vibration to their work, a sense of you're listening to wisdom. He talks about what's called second attention in shamanism, and so like right now you and I are talking, but you see in my second attention I can feel a spider over there. So what he talks about is called flirts in shamanism. So for example, if you're sitting and eating lunch and all of a sudden a hummingbird stump and, and just seems to want to buzz your head over and over again, but it's not buzzing anybody else's head. It's just going right to you. You think, okay, I'm being flirted with. If you're sitting in your office and out of the corner of your eye, you sense movement and you turn your head and there's nothing there. Well, for me, I go, okay, I'm getting a visitation from the spirit world. So then I just relax. And I let my awareness expand. And all of a sudden, I see that same thing, except now I don't turn and directly look at it. I just direct my awareness to what it is. Because if you go right directly at it, you're going to use your five senses. So it's going to knock you out of your subtle perception. So then I just expand myself. For example, if you were in your house and there was five people in your house and you were sitting reading a book and you sent somebody walking toward you, and it was Lauren, Mm -hmm. would she have to get all the way in front of you and say, here I am, before you knew it was Lauren? No. Or would you be able to tell the difference between Lauren coming to you energetically and your brother? 100% be able to tell. Okay, so that's using your second attention. You don't have to turn your head. You can feel her vibration. You can feel her presence. So when I have a flirtation like that, then I can actually just relax myself and let my conscious orientation go to what I feel in my field. Because if I turn and look at it, it's too easy to switch to your five senses, which blocks out the rest of the universe, right? Most of it. And so then with practice, you start being more open to the flirtations and you know that they're often 
very exciting and interesting encounters, right? It, it might be a deceased relative coming to give you a message. Uh, I'll give you an example. One time, this has happened several times, but one time I got in bed and I just lay down. I was just kind of like where I was just about to fall asleep and I felt someone come sit on top of me. And at first it scared me. And I went, oh my God, there's a spirit in here. There's, there's somebody like a deceased soul. There's a, there's a body sitting on me right now. And so I, I, first I got nervous because I'm, you know, I've worked with a lot of disembodied souls and entities. And I thought, I wonder if there's a negative entity coming to play havoc with me here or something. So the first thing I did is I said to my soul, I, I said, is there somebody here in the room with us? And the answer was yes. And I said, are we safe? And the answer was yes. And I said, would you please open our clairvoyant vision so I can see who it is? And I was shocked. It was my grandmother. Wow. My grandmother that I loved dearly that died when I was, you know, probably 12 or 13 years old, but touched me to the core of my being. And so then I began talking to her and she informed me that she's around all the time. She's been watching me since she left. And so what happened is, is now that I was aware, whenever I would have that feeling, I would check. And often it was my grandmother coming to hang out with me and just share with me because you see those people are speaking to us at the level of our unconscious because they usually can't access our ego minds because we're too encapsulated and too busy. Too busy, distracted. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how power animals and spirit guides work. I hope you're loving this podcast with Paul and myself. And it's got me thinking, you know, back in 2013 to 2016, when I was working very closely with Paul, he was my coach and helping me rehab some injuries and, and supporting me in the kettlebell realm and in the life realm as well, of course. You know, at that time, I didn't really have an understanding. But now looking back, you know, Paul would say, we did such deep coaching that this was going to be an internship almost for me. And I was going to be able to use a lot of what we were using as authentic experience to share and teach others from around the world. I want to say parts of me knew that at the time, but I didn't fully quite understand it. But now looking back, especially with the creation of Kettlebell Lifestyle, so much of that program was inspired by the work that I did with Paul. Because I didn't want to just create another movement program or another kettlebell program. As Paul would say, is this, if all we're doing is training, then we're just draining as well. And we need to incorporate things like working in restorative practices, breath work. We need to consider the entire individual. And that's really what that program does, Kettlebell Lifestyle. It considers the entire person and really supports you in a methodical process through phases, through progressions, through stages to really building you up from the bare bones beginning all the way up into becoming an intermediate level lifter with a ton of skill that not only you can apply to your kettlebell movements and training in the gym, but you can apply to any area of life that you want, whether you have an activity or a sport that you're interested in, or if you just want to be a more healthy, happy, durable human being. So if you haven't already, check it out. The program is Kettlebell Lifestyle and any subscriber of the Path Podcast gets 20% off. All you got to do is go to www.kettlebellifestyle.com and use code PATH20 and you'll enjoy that discount. Let's get back to the show with Paul. So one thing I feel like as a society, we've lost one, the respect, but also just having wise elders in our life. And I really see you and know you to be a wise elder. And with that comes an incredible amount of life experience, 
initiations throughout life, relationships, all of that sort of stuff. So I know that you're knee deep, uh, more than knee deep in your book right now. Mm-hmm. So what I'm, I'm curious- Balls deep. Balls <laughs> Neck deep. <laughs> Head deep. Heart deep. As an elder and as someone who has a tremendous amount of life experience and has coached uh, damn near every relationship out there and is really working on this book that involves all matters of the spirit, as we close this, I'd love to just hear um, whether it's with that book or what is most important to you right now? Well, what's most important to me right now is I've spent my whole life learning how to analyze people physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually so I can help them. Mm -hmm. When I look at the world, if you take humanity and say each human being is akin to one cell in your body, so now we, we have the anthropos, which is the idea that all cells of the man, the human, not male like male man, but man as the race of beings, and I look out at the world and say, if this is my patient that's come to me for help, and I do an analysis on the patient, and I say, how do I help the patient? I see the patient is in a severe case of unconsciousness. It's brainwashed, it's poisoned, and it's been programmed to self-destruct because it's profitable to dark entities to use that program self-destruction for their own financial gain and material gain. And those entities are only interested in power, wealth, and control, but they do not realize that it's their own fear of their inability to control and control the forces of nature in their own life that is being projected onto the world. You see that mm-hmm. point? Mm-hmm. So the paradox is, is that their use of money, power, and technology is so advanced is that they've now infected, possessed people with their own insecurities and their own fear. And so look what happened. 911, which was bought and paid for, was an event that inflicted human beings with a tremendous amount of fear. And now that we've got enough nuclear weapons active around the world to destroy the planet 179 times over, to just atomize this planet, it's too risky to start a world war because it means everybody dies, including Bill Gates and company, Soros and company, and all these control freaks. So the only way they could keep their big industry of fear profitable was to create an autoimmune disorder and turn your iPhone and your Alexa and everything else into a spy device that could be used not only to control you and to spy on you, but to gather data to program your mind to buy exactly the products, the drugs, and get the vaccinations and everything else that they want you to do to keep you from reaching a level of consciousness where you're self-sufficient and aware and not afraid of death because then you become uncontrollable and you're truly a free man. So the answer is when I look and see the patient, that's the rest of myself, I feel a deep soul urge. It would be like seeing my own child addicted to drugs or addicted to a cult. I would say, what have I got to do to help wake my child up to the fact that they are unconscious that what they're doing ultimately could get them killed. And my deeper empathy goes out to nature because we are destroying the lives of everything that supports our lives, which is a very, very high sign of illness, psychopathic illness. So I've known that I was going to 
need to put this information in the public. And I've been researching for many years and sitting on my desk is over 800 pages of handwritten notes of my research. And that's not only research through the literature, but my spiritual research. But when COVID hit, I felt this tremendous sense of pressure that I must act now because the, we're at a point where if we go much further and people allow themselves to be misled and, and brainwashed and programmed any further, that we could literally destroy not only humanity, but we could uh, wipe out nature so bad it might take countless thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of years. I don't know how long for nature to regenerate itself so that this planet can be healthy. And, you know, people are unaware because of scientific materialism that what we look out the window and think of as objects like trees, plants, and rocks are actually living conscious beings. Why? Because they're all the divine manifesting itself in form. So the universe is God's body. We're looking at God's body. And just like there are many living creatures inside of you. And if you want to do an interesting experiment, just take a drop of water and look at it under a microscope and you'll see it's full of life. You go, oh my God, there's an entire sea of creatures in there. <laughs> and it looks clear like there's nothing in there. And so that's their world. To them, that's their world. But when they enter you, now they're in your world, right? So we're all inside of God's body. But we keep looking for God, which I think is just hilarious. I'm like, you're looking for God. If you want to find God, just go stand in front of a mirror. <laughs> There's your first tip. <laughs> and just say, and that's why for thousands of years, yogis and, and mystics have always been saying the most quite important question you can ask yourself is, who am I? What am I? And when you get the answer to the question, there is only one answer. <laughs> I'm God. You're, you're everything. It takes the entire universe to make Mike Salemi or Paul check. I could give you a very detailed explanation to prove it, but it's true. A simple way to look at this, if you want to go the scientific materialist route, all I got to do is break your body down into chemical constituents and then say, okay, where did these atoms come from? And I will find gold in you. I will find silver. I will find boron. I will find nickel. I will find cadmium. I'll find calcium. And then if I say, okay, where'd these come from? Well, some of them will have come from the earth. And you say, where'd they come from? Well, they came out of the sun. But then you'll find many of them that aren't produced in the sun. So then you say, well, I have to go to that star, which you can use doing light spectroscopy. That's how they know what's in these stars. They read the light. You know, it's not that with modern technology, it's very easy to do. So scientists have done this and concluded that everything that's on earth came from everywhere in the entire universe everything. So what is your body made of? Everything. Where did it come from? Everywhere. Who are you? Everything from everywhere. What is the only thing that's everything and everywhere? God. <laughs> and if you don't like the word God, pure potential. And, and, and interestingly, when I interviewed Walt Thornhill, the chief scientist for the Electric Universe Project, which has shown that there's just you know, massive amounts of electricity flowing through the plasma and that the stars are actually created by electrical circuits and discharge and without a long story, but, but the, the, the science is very solid. I said to him, I said, okay, well, you've got these huge currents of plasma with like, you know, 
billions and billions and billions of watts of power. I mean, you know, like one lightning bolt is just a fart compared to some of these things that are running through our galaxy. I said, you know, you know, as a man with a background in electronics, that you can't have an electric circuit without a potential source of energy. He said, that is correct. I said, if there's this much energy in the universe, then where is the power coming from? His answer, I don't know. Nobody does. Good. The other answer, I don't know, becomes God. What does God mean? That which is so big and so vast and so comprehensive that my mind is too small to grasp it. Therefore, we use the word God as the space holder for that which is the source of all that is and is beyond comprehension. And the lesson there is anyone that tells you what, what God wants or what God is or what God expects of you is dead wrong because the only way you can know what God wants is to become God. The problem is to become God, you have to be annihilated as an individual or there's two and there's only one God. So for Mike to know what God wants, God has to fully become Mike, which means Mike's ego has to die. And then there's nobody there to tell me what they found out. So nobody can know what God wants. Because anyone like me that's had union experiences with God will tell you when you're in a state of oneness with God, the paradox is you know everything and you know nothing. You're everything, but you're nothing. You're alive and you're dead but there's no you there and you don't even know how you came back from the experience. So the scientific fact is you can only tell what happened as you dissolved into God and as you came out of it and to say something happened, there's a subject witnessing the experience, which requires a duality and the duality is two steps removed from the unity of God, which is mathematically zero. And that's also why quantum physicists have shown over and over again, like Paul Dirac and many others, if you take the matter and the antimatter and calculate what the result of those two meeting is, it's zero. And there's many ways to calculate it. And it's been done by quantum physicists several times. And even Stephen Hawking's did it, huh. except he confused himself because of his own religious bias. He said there's no need for God because the net value of the universe is zero. Therefore, we don't need God because it all happens by itself. Hmm. And I said, you're so smart, you missed the point. You just figured out what God is and you didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Paul, every single time I get to spend time with you, I don't learn one thing. I learn about 200 things, <laughs> whether it's what you share verbally or just simply how I feel when I'm around you and, and, and observing how you live. And, and today's been such a special day getting to stack rocks and sauna and cold plunge. Um, so first and foremost, I just want to say not only thank you for today, but thank you for your life's work. Well, thank you. And I will say this to you. Yeah. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it to you and your whole audience. Don't believe a damn thing I just told you. Mm -hmm. Go figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Or it's just my word. And the last thing I want people doing is just becoming par parrots and, and photocopy machines. If I'm doing anything, I'm saying to you, this is a, a breadcrumb trail of the explorations that I've done so that I could 
evaluate all ideas about life, God, and everything else and determine whether or not they ring true when I honestly investigate them and say, what happens when I apply that philosophy, that belief, that technique, or that way of relating in my life? And if it produces results, great. If it produces results sometimes and not others, then I have to say, okay, now we have an idea that has to be classified. And you can say, you know, uh, a kettlebell is good for certain things, but not for others. Mm -hmm. You know, when you need a foam roller, you don't need a kettlebell. (laughs) So certain things have specific applications. But when it comes to the ideas of consciousness, love, and God, they have universal applications. There's nowhere in the universe that love doesn't open doors. Mm. There's nowhere in the universe where love doesn't bring you into harmonious, sympathetic resonance with consciousness, life, and other beings. Um, There's no place in the universe where consciousness isn't a factor because consciousness, by definition, is the flow of energy and information, and that's what the whole universe is created out of. So I'm grateful that, you know, that my time and our relationship and your relationship with me has brought me a lot. Why? Mm. Because every teacher, the, the greatest dream of every teacher is somebody that will actually practice what they teach so that they can see it working in the world. A good percentage of any teacher's students just nod their head, memorize shit, but then go off and live like they never learned anything, which <laughs> makes the teacher very irritated. Yeah. But you know, the reward you have given me and, 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 uh, some of my students like Amy Fournier and uh, Jason Picard and all my instructors and, and many of my students is that they've actually gone out and put my teachings to the test so that they become authentically their own experience. Mm. And then they come back to me and they say, Paul, um, I'm really grateful for what you taught me, not because they memorized it and now they can make more money sounding cool because they eat, sleep, breathe, shit, and share it every day as a living embodiment of something that now becomes their own. And, and that's true spirituality. That's really what religion's supposed to be. The word religion means religio, to link back. It means to connect to. So the job of a real teacher is, is to teach you to connect to more of yourself. Spirituality, by definition, is connecting to a greater whole. So as you grow spiritually, you start to awaken to yourself and your consciousness in a progressively greater whole. So first, so you're in love now. So you feel your own consciousness and your own love being reverberated back to you from Lauren. Yeah. But soon you're going to have a child and you're going to see and feel your consciousness reverberated back to you. <laughs> and then when you realize how much you love your own students, you'll see your consciousness reverberated back to you. And then when you love the world, and you love nature, you'll see and feel love everywhere you go because nature will come into sympathetic resonance with you. Wow. Right? But if you walk out into nature thinking, I want to kill everything, you'll find things want to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) And so the one that grows spiritually actually begins to come into sympathetic resonance with a greater and greater whole until you find yourself at the edges of the universe and go, holy shit. I'm looking at the big me from the little me and the big me created the little me. So it had something to love and something that could love it back. And this is why the ancients say, why did, why do stars shine? So you will look at them. What does it mean? It means the big self wants love from the little self. 
So it sends lights out from trillions of miles away to say, don't forget me. And this is why the aboriginals say, stars are the campfires of our ancestors. And there it is. And now when you go on a sacred hunt, mm-hmm. it'll be sacred. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Oh, this has been such a such an enjoyable and, and eye-opening and heart-opening chat with you as it always is. Are there any final words you want to share? And, and of course, where can people find you? And you've got an incredible podcast, Living 4D. Um, any final words, buddy? Yeah, uh, you know, my podcast is Living 4D with Paul Check. It's got amazing people like Mike Salemi on it. <laughs> you know, the Czech Institute, C-H-E-K Institute.com. We have a lot of, of, of great programs on there. My public access course for getting yourself healthy is called Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level One. Mm-hmm. My most popular public book is How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. It's on Amazon. You know, I run my private workshops, which are outside the Institute because they're often kind of more deeply esoteric. And those are, we call them the rainbow workshops. So if you just search Paul Check Rainbow Workshop, you'll see whatever's popping up, or you can just email penny at paulcheck.com and ask to be put on the rainbow workshop mailing list so you get notified of workshops. My YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash Paul C-H-E-K live, youtube.com forward slash Paul Check live, where I have over 750 videos I've produced as my um, gift to the public to help them understand and heal and grow and exercise better and eat better and relate better and not get caught in silly games. I think that's it. I don't know. Did I forget anything? No, I think you, <laughs> I have to ask you, you. You, you, you nailed it. And uh, I'll just, you know, finish with just sharing with people as concisely as I can. All of Paul's courses have been life-changing for me and I've gone through many. HLC one, however, for me is my mom's gone through it. It oh, is good. Oh yeah. I mean, it, for me, it's like, the most essential toolkit to being a healthy human. So, Paul, thank you again, buddy. I love hey, you so yeah, much. Congratulations on your yeah. podcast. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I have such joy in my podcast. And, you know, you've got enough life experience now to have a hell of a lot to share with people. So, you know, I think of all the days I traveled ceaselessly for 25 years on airplanes to go to rooms with between 35 and 500 people in them. <laughs> And now I get, you know, 50,000 people listening to a podcast. So, you know, I would have had to travel probably for two years straight from conference hall to conference hall to get what I can get in one podcast. So my point for you is that, you know, having a a good podcast uh, allows you to really have a much greater impact on the world that people can enjoy while they're exercising, driving down the road in their car, cooking or sitting in the bathtub or whatever. So it's, it's such a you know, there's the global brain (laughs) working to heal itself and grow itself. Well, thank you, Paul. We will close it off with a whole great spirit. You are safe. You are home. You are whole. It is done. It is done. It is done. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours.